If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Timothy. There this morning we resume our study. Today, it is my privilege to get to tell you how to and how not to dress. <laughs> so I hope you came prepared. Gird up your loins. Um, no, we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 2, specifically verses 8 to 15, where Timothy is, or Paul rather, is, has, and back in verse 1, started addressing different aspects of the public worship to Timothy, how it needed to go in Ephesus, and of course we can take this and apply it to modern-day church. And so as we're getting into the situation, Paul begins to address gender roles and what they look like and how we are supposed to live in community together, especially with regards to when we come together for worship. So it should, it, we, we should be completely um, clear that God would have a prescribed order to how this is supposed to go because God is a God of order, not chaos. We have to appreciate that when you see God moving, <laughs> even in nature, what God is doing so in creation, what is God doing? The earth was form and voidless. Uh, God is bringing order and principle to what was chaotic. When we see miracles, a lot of the miracles that Jesus performed, of course, they're declaring His identity. They're declaring Him to be God. But what is Jesus doing? He's bringing order and principle to the chaos of sickness and death and even nature. When nature is at a tempest, Jesus, we see Him in the, in, in the presence of the disciples bringing order to the tempest, bringing order to what temporarily appears chaotic. And so God is a God of order, and so it should not be lost on us that this morning He is bringing an order to how we worship together and what it really needs to look like. And so having spoken of prayer in the first part of this paragraph, Paul picks back up on that idea and then begins to address what men should do and how they carry themselves and what women should do and how they carry themselves. So that's where we are this morning. In 1 Timothy, starting in verse chapter 2, verse 8, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love, holiness with self-control. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Let's pray together now. Father, thank You for this passage. Thank You that it is very clear. Thank You that it is very black and white, and it gets right to the heart of what exactly Paul was trying to communicate. Oh, Father, don't let Satan twist these words in our minds and hearts. Don't let Satan snatch the beautiful truth that is herein and give us the grace to see it clearly. 
Through Christ we pray. Amen. You and I, as we are presently living and alive, are presently witnessing and living through some very insane times. How often do you hear stuff through the media or read stuff in print or see stuff come across social media that you just look at it, if you're like me, you stare at it for a second and you think, someone is not really writing this. Someone hasn't actually verbalized this. I mean, a few generations ago, not so, not so long ago, you wouldn't have even heard of a man saying, I'm, tra- I'm, I'm, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. It wouldn't have it would've even been uttered. It wouldn't have been thought, much less uttered. We're told right now, gender is not binary. In fact, there are multiple genders. I think the last thing I saw, there were 56 options. I mean, what, is, what, what are we living through? We're told that gender is, should not be assigned. It's to be discovered, and it can only be discovered by the person themselves. We're told so many lies about gender and human sexuality. But beloved of God, let me tell you, there's a reason for it. <laughs> Do you think it is lost on Satan, the enemy of our soul, that human beings are created in the image of God. And so where am I, if I'm the chief enemy of God and the people He's created, where do I want to attack them? Right at the point where they are image bearers. And so then to start taking views of image and identity and twisting it into lies so that now I'm, my goal as the enemy of your soul is to annihilate the image of God in you. Because Satan aspired to power and rule. God cast him down. And so this push to destroy bodies with mutilation or hormone therapy are pushes to annihilate the very thing that is the core of our identity. To distort it, to further crush it, to take it away. And so when we think about the statement I'm about to make, I think it's very important. Gender matters, and gender matters are very important. It's not, we, we don't concede, we don't ever concede for the sake of argument that gender is some sort of false construct. It is very, very, very true because we are told in Scripture, He created them male and female, male and female. He created them after his own Im- or in His own image after His likeness. And so that becomes a very, very important statement. So when we come to this paragraph that we've just read together, it's also an important paragraph. Now, it's often called by a lot of commentators, and most, in fact, that I've read, the most difficult paragraph in the pastoral epistles. And maybe you would agree with that. Well, I'll tell you this, there's nothing difficult about the language itself. The language is very straightforward when I translate it. There's nothing difficult about the sentence structure. The sentence structure is very straightforward. The difficulty comes in the content because so often we want to shy away from this paragraph because we're afraid of offense. And I will speak to that more in just a few moments, but however, that's one of the reasons. But if we take this paragraph as it stands, 
without qualifying or redefining what Paul says, it's really not that difficult. And if we appreciate the heart and the spirit herein, it's not that difficult. So let me go ahead and say this. Paul is not chauvinistic. Paul is not unduly trying to subjugate women. He is saying God has created humanity, male and female, and we have different roles when it comes to church worship. And if we can just say, hey, at the bare bones, at the base level, that's really what Paul is doing, and build from that, it's a very straightforward, loving, helpful paragraph. This paragraph really is about liberty. What do you mean by that, Brad? It's about liberating men and women to do what God has called them to do and not place other undue burdens on men or women to do something that they've not been called to or designed to do. But see, here's the problem. I feel even a little stirring in my stomach right now as we're talking about the issue of submission. That's because we've been culturally conditioned to look askance at words like submission. It's been worked into us, well, I'm, I submit. What do you want? I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not your slave. You're not better than me. And that's not what submission means. But see, it, it's most naturally we go in those directions because the culture has done a great job of convincing us submission is a dirty word. Well, really, when you think of word, the word submission, if we want to look at it literally, it means to come under, sub, to come under the mission of someone else. And so when we think about submission as coming under the mission of someone else, and really when we're in submission to someone, we are following along with them in their mission, and we're saying, yeah, well, now this is also my mission. That's what submission really is all about. Now this is my mission as well as your mission. But see, we're also we've conditioned by culture, read the commentaries, to question if Paul really meant what he said here. What did Paul really mean that? Women shouldn't have authority over men in the church or that women shouldn't be teaching men in the church. He really meant it. He wrote it, he wrote it very straightforwardly. See, because what, the, what, what we read and what we hear, and I've read this in print, so I'm telling you exactly what I've read a professing Christian commentator say. If we take Paul literally here, which we cannot, we must assume at best he's ignorant or at worst, he's completely misogynistic. Beloved of God, that shouldn't be in print from a Christian writer. I mean, do I even need to say that? Especially if we take the Bible as the infallible word, inspired word of God without error, then you're not accusing Paul at this point. You're accusing the God who inspired it. Does it make you uncomfortable? That's okay, it may. It makes me a little uncomfortable to talk about it. But if we're going to take Scripture, all of Scripture, and rightly divide the word of truth, we've got to deal with this, and we can't make concessions just because it might make us feel uncomfortable. But we also need to properly define terms so that we all know exactly what we're talking about, and we don't have pictures of submission as a man trying to use a woman as a doormat, because that is also unbiblical and wrong and uninspired. It's lost on culture here. It's lost on, our, on the broader culture and even some who would profess Christianity. It's lost on a culture that Paul is advocating for more rights and dignity for women than all the cultures prior to Christianity. 
I mean, you can read. It's in writing that some of the ancient rabbis said it would be better to burn the scrolls than to teach them to a woman. (laughs) It's laughable. And Paul is saying, no, 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 women, I want you to learn. I want you to be disciples. You need to learn the Scriptures and the truth. There are just ways in which we're going to go about it that are proper and right. So Paul is not restricting women here. In fact, he's giving them more liberty than every culture just about prior to his, with some exceptions. He's liberating women to pursue discipleship in the way that God designed it and the way that works for the peace and unity of the church. And when we can start there, beloved, we're starting from a place of health. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea, and it's this. Men and women are liberated to worship in their God-given roles. Men and women are liberated to worship in their God-given roles. So when we're looking at this list here, this paragraph, I've used the word binary before. I'm going to use it again. We're looking at a set of binary duties. Men and women, gender is binary. You're male, you're female. And that's it. So it's binary. And and for most parts, the duties with regarding to worship are binary. Men are to do this and women are to do this. And we come together to work out a beautifully orchestrated organism, the church, that works best when we follow God's prescription. So often... As we look at that God does indeed have specific roles for men and women in the church, one of the weak arguments that comes against it is, well, what about Galatians 3.28? Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. He obliterates any distinction. He obliterates distinction in that context. I'm not going to go preach Galatians 3 right now, but you're free to go back and look it up. The distinction he's obliterating is with regards to salvation. He's talking about people who are saved. I mean, men and women alike are sinners and need to be saved. Free and slave alike, Jews and Greeks, need, they're all broken at heart level that needs the salvation of God. So that, Paul doesn't dispose of gender completely. He's saying with regards to salvation, gender doesn't matter because we all need Christ. As he begins here, as he generally does, Paul begins with the men. And this is kind of carrying on. He's carrying on from the previous paragraph about prayer. So he says, I desire then, therefore, therefore I desire, literally, that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We'll stop right there. So he reaffirms the call for men to be praying. The therefore, the ESV translates it then, but the therefore is connecting this with the previous paragraph. So in light of the call to pray, what is Paul saying to men? He says, in light of the call that all men everywhere should be praying, men, pray. Be men of prayer. Are you a man of prayer? I confess that is not my strong suit. I pray, but I wish I was more of a prayer warrior. And this is Paul's command to us as men, be men of prayer. Be men who are seeking the Lord in prayer. All men everywhere, not just pastors, not just elders, not officers, just officers in the church. But if you are a man sitting within the sound of my voice, you need to be a man of prayer just like I do. And Paul talks about lifting holy hands when we pray. The idea of lifting holy hands when we pray is the notion of hands that are offered to Christ. These are the symbol of submission. These are the symbol of surrender. Holy hands, hands not given to wickedness, hands not given to evil. 
The psalmist prays, give us clean hands and a pure heart, and let us not lift our souls to another. Paul is advocating that as we pray, that we are men of righteousness, men of holiness, men who are living our lives in surrender and submission, and that our prayers are evidence when we are lifting holy hands to pray, or whether we're not lifting them, whether we're just praying, that we are men who are living our lives in submission, there's that word, in submission to Christ, and that if we have leadership roles, we are seeking to lead others in submission to Christ, and we have families, we're seeking to lead our families into submission to Christ. But I love what he says, the propensity. I think he's, he's dealing with a very male aspect, without anger or quarreling. He's telling men to avoid the very things that rob the body or the worship of peace and unity. Because the word love has become almost meaningless in our culture, but it means something very big in the Bible. Love is a very important word, and one of the things that we are to be is men of love. That's not, that's not a feminine quality. I mean, it is that, but it's so much more than that. Men, we need to be known by our love, our love for God and our love for God's people, our love for our families. The first thing, one of the qualities that people who meet us right off the bat should be, he's a loving fellow. Now, I, I can be a little bit reserved and shy, so I probably don't give off that vibe the first time you meet me, but I promise you I'm not a snob. I'm just, can be socially awkward sometimes. But we want people to see the love of Christ in us. And where does that begin? That begins with us being men of prayer, men who pray. Starting in verse 9, he transitions over to women. And for the rest of this paragraph, that's where Paul camps out. And so starting in verse 9, Paul is giving us specific instruction for women in worship. He says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So we'll stop right there. So Paul begins, he's going to address two things here. What, what, they, what, what women, what our sisters wear, and how they function in the assembly. Those are the two primary things he's dealing with right now in this paragraph. First is clothing. It's very straightforward. He uses the words uh, respectable. He uses the word modest. And so he, he talks about attire that is respectable and modest for one primary point. So that our clothes are commiserate. The clothing is commiserate with the godliness professed. She's a lady who does good works. Her godliness is seen in her love and service to the church, but her clothing is commiserate with the godliness that she professes. And so when we think about women and their attire, he says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. I'll address that here in just a moment. What is proper for women who profess godliness is with good works. But he's talking about this idea of how do, how, do, how do you glorify God in the worship service? Well, one of the ways in which we all, he's talking to ladies here, is saying, let your clothing point to Christ, not to you, not drawing attention to yourself, but pointing you and pointing others to God. How is a practical way 
that we love God and love our neighbor, and I'm talking about a purely practical thing here, is modesty. It's modesty. How do we love God and love our neighbor? We take modesty very seriously. And we choose modesty because it's God-honoring and it also honors our neighbor. And also it makes a statement about how we view the body, which I want to come back to here in just a moment. Paul says, with no braided hair and pearls or gold or literally expensive clothing, you know what Paul is saying there? I'm just going to get it down to the street level. Don't be gaudy. And there's a reason that Paul says this. And there's a reason that if you were to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter says something almost identical. Do you know what the braided hair, the pearls, the gold, and the costly attire communicated in this time period? Temple prostitutes or someone who's ultra-wealthy and wants you to see how wealthy she is. And so really what he's doing, we can make an application to say, don't be gaudy and draw attention to yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Let your godliness be your most adorning thing. Let your profession of Christ be the, the boldest, most, most prominent thing that people see. And so when we come to this, I just want to say this plainly. This is not about body shaming, a word that we hear so much. This is not about body shaming. God made females beautiful. Females are beautiful because they're made in the image of God, and He made them to be beautiful. So Paul is not trying to body shame. This is not men trying to control women's closet. This is Paul making a very practical command to Timothy to say, when we come to worship, let it be about God and not about you. Point others to God and not to your body. And women, I want to say this to you right here, right now, because I have three daughters, and I'm, we've tried to raise them up. You, woman of God, are not responsible for a man's lust. A man's lust is his lust that he must deal with between his accountability partners, and between him and the Lord. So I would never, ever, ever make my daughters, my wife, or any of you feel like, well, if a man is lusting, that's your fault. You just clean it up. That's the worst thing you could say. Can I say that modesty is a good choice to love your brothers in Christ? Yeah, that is that. That is true. That is a great way to love your brothers in Christ. But the question that Paul, the question, so the Puritans would always say, what's the sin behind the sin? A counselor will ask, what's the question behind the question? What's the statement here? What's the underlying reality that Paul is trying to work for? Dress for God and not the world. Dress for the glory of God and not to look like the culture around you. Don't dress because this is faddish. Dress for what we know honors the Lord. Because when we, when we take this tact, we're, we're implementing a principle that John the Baptist stated very clearly. When, he, when Jesus was coming on the scene, John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. And so when we are coming to worship, we are coming to decrease so that the Spirit of Christ can increase among us. And the ways we do that are ways that we try to take the focus off ourselves and continually put them back on the Lord. So this is not meant to be dictatorial. 
This is meant to give us instruction because the human heart will push the limits of what is right and acceptable because, well, we are saints if we're in Christ who still struggle with sin. That's just the reality. Sin is constantly knocking at the door like God told Cain. Sin is knocking at the door. We must master it. How do we master sin patterns in our lives? By coming back to the Word of God and saying, well, this is what the Word says. So, what women wear. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, or literally remain in quietness. So I'll stop right there because that's what we want to address first. So when we, we come to this assembly aspect, what are we to gather from this? Well, as I've already used the word liberation, liberty, Paul is liberating women to learn in the, in the way that God has designed. Now, when you see this phrase here, let a woman learn, that's actually an imperative, express command. So Paul is not saying a woman can learn if she would like to. He is commanding women who come to the assembly to be learners, come to be discipled, come to be taught, come to do what it is God has designed you to do to grow in godliness. And so this is, as I told you, this is a big departure from a culture that didn't teach women, who saw women barely above slaves, which is horrible. I'm glad it changed. But he is, he is implementing a, an ideology that was uncommon in his time or with his people. There has been much made about that word quietly. Some translations have let a woman be silent with all submiss submissiveness. That is an unfortunate translation. The word can mean silent, but that's not what Paul is going for here. When he, when he says, let a woman learn quietly, think of in quietness. So think of peace of mind and heart. Not complete silence. She is to learn in peace. She is to learn in tranquility. And that with all submissiveness, that she learns in the peace of mind and heart, not silence, that she follows the authority, that she submits to loving authority, not despotic power. You'll hear me say this again, but when the Bible calls people to submission, the assumption of the writer of whatever, whether it's Paul or whoever is or Peter, when it's speaking of people being in submission, the assumption is that they're in submission to a God-loving authority. And so Paul is telling, a, he's telling women to, to learn in peace, to grow apart from turmoil. And then he, he builds on this. So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So when he's saying this, what he's telling us, that teach here is to be understood as preaching. So in, in, he's talking about the preaching role in the gathered worship service, and Paul designates that to the male. That is the plain meaning of the text. 
People have tried many ways to disassemble this. The, the most uh, popular argument is this is purely cultural, that Paul is just making a cultural statement in the culture of his time and that it's not obligatory for us now. And one of the writers said, a writer whom I really love, I was really baffled when he said, because obviously we don't lift our hands every time we pray, so clearly this, was, this doesn't apply to women when they're in the church. And I'm thinking, How? that's not even tight logic. That, that doesn't make sense to me. I was very baffled that this one commentator said it. People are falling all over themselves to say everything but what the text says. And I'll just tell you this, as a student of the Word, that there's nothing internal into this text that would suggest anything other than what it says. Now, we can try to, to do the gymnastics to get there, but beloved of God, at the end of the day, it says what it says, and there is nothing that could compel me to see that Paul is really, this is the wink, wink, hey, Ephesus, you do you, you do this, but Galatia, y'all can do whatever. Corinthians, y'all can do whatever. You know, Crete, y'all can do whatever. That, that doesn't make sense. I think we have to take the plainer, harder meaning that this is not just cultural. It's a binding commandment for the church. But let me also go to the other extreme. The other extreme is to have the notion that if women say anything, that's sin, which is also crazy, or that women have no capacity to teach. I mean, my goodness, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, I thank God that you got great instruction, Timothy. Instruction, you were taught by your mother and your grandmother. He tells Titus, Titus, have the older women teach the younger women. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes provision for wives who prophesy in the assembly. And so when we take the whole biblical counsel, we understand that Paul is looking at a specific act that he's telling women, this is the man's role, you are the learner. Because women have, are a great gift to the church. They have been a great gift to the church since the beginning. And anybody who diminishes that role is not biblical. Anybody who tries to change the biblical witness to make room for a cultural push is also not biblical. So, beloved, what do we do? We do what Martin Luther did and say, this is what the plain meaning of the Word of God says, here I stand, I can do no other. It may not be popular in our culture, but it's right. You know, it's not, this, is not, this is not just prohibitive only. It really is meant to liberate for us to serve in our proper roles. Despite the toxicity of our culture and the messages we keep hearing about men and women and gender and all this stuff, men and women are different. We are different. We think differently. We act differently. We respond differently to different things. Our, our, our physicality is different but we are equally dignified. We share the dignity of the imago Dei, the image of God. And so men and women are equally beautiful in the sight of God. We are equally necessary in the church. We are equally necessary in the world. Different roles does not communicate any less worth or value. It just means we're different. And that's okay. It's okay that we're different. Because in a push for equality, when you diminish the differences and you try to make things equal, you get things like we see play out in the news. When men are competing in women's sports and they demolish the sport. You know why? Because we're falling all over ourselves to say, well, they're the same. Clearly they're not. 
But as Christians, be, be free. Be free to say, we don't have to be just alike. We can be different, and we share dignity. I mean, I don't want to embarrass my wife, but my wife is strong in ways that I'm not strong and grounded in ways that I'm not grounded. We are very different, Rachel and me, in a lot of ways. But there, there are some beauties and strengths she possessed that I, I would never, I could never have. But I'm so thankful that God put her with me because I get to enjoy the fellowship of those things. And there are people in this room, not marriages, but different people who bring something into your lives. They're different. It's different. But it brings something so gracious and good and beautiful into your life that it, if they weren't different, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be as beautiful. It wouldn't be as great. It wouldn't be the gift that it is. So, beloved, we're one body under one head, one Lord through one baptism, one faith, one rebirth, a, a beautiful collage of differences that come together and are unified in the body of Christ. And those differences are okay because that, a different doesn't mean undignified. When Paul begins to build on this, so after, after he says that, <clears throat> he gives this kind of causal, this kind of, he goes back to creation. Literally, it says, for Adam was formed, but we could say kind of just to make sense of this verse, because Adam was formed first and then Eve. So Paul has given us the foundation for why it's set up this way, creation. And I love what one commentator did say. He said, it should not be lost on us that Eve was not made from the cranium as if she was over Adam. She wasn't made from his feet as if she was under Adam. She was made from the rib because she would come alongside Adam and be equal in dignity and have a different function than Adam. I loved that picture in my mind because I, I doubt that's what Moses was thinking of when he wrote it, but it makes a lot of sense to me. So when we look at this, gender does become essential. Paul makes a big deal out of it. God created Adam first, the male. He created Eve, the female. God made Adam the head over Eve. Eve would come alongside Adam and aside Adam and help him complete his tasks. Adam would bear the burden of headship and leadership. And so when we think about these equally dignified but distinct roles that men and women play, beloved, it's not bigotry. It's not misogyny. It's not hate. It's truth. Plain and simple. It's truth. And when Paul builds on this, I want to also dispel something. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul is not diminishing Eve in this particular sentence. He's not diminishing her. He's not saying that she's somehow lesser than Adam because she made a choice of deception. Because remember, Adam ate of the fruit too. What Paul is doing is he's giving us a, an example of what happens when God's plan is abdicated. So when Lee, Eve takes the lead and does something that she's not supposed to, you have a disaster. So Paul is kind of rerouting us back to creation, the way that God created it, and then saying, look, what happens when we don't follow this is we're going to have chaos. We're going to have disaster, i.e., I'll put it simply, God's plan is best. Worship functions best when we follow God's pattern. So when we look at God's plan, it's God's plan that brings real growth. And worship 
it takes a whole host of people serving for it to come off. This doesn't diminish anybody. It doesn't diminish anybody. What it means is, is different people play different roles to make it happen in the way that God has prescribed. And we should just embrace that. Last verse, verse 15. I will not deny this is a, this is a difficult verse. Very. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And it's at first blush, because the ESV and most modern translations leave out one little word that makes the difference here in how we understand it. Now, there are several different opinions of what Paul is driving at here. I'm not going to recount them all. Some of them are weird. But there is one little definite article that modern translations choose to leave out. I'll read it the way that it says it in Greek. Yet, she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, Brad, what does difference does that make? Paul adds in a definite article. So what it tells us right then and there that he has something specific in mind as he's writing this out. He is trying to reconcile the fact he's just talked about Eve was deceived. And so he's coming back around to the central tenet of the gospel. The childbearing that I think Paul has in mind here is the incarnation of Christ. And he is reminding us right here, right now, that though Eve was deceived, she is saved in the same way we all are through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So she will be saved. All women are saved in the same way that men are. And that way, boom, we are absolutely equal. There is no difference. At the, at the point of salvation, that is where we share an equality. And so, and when she is saved through that childbearing, he puts the conditional if there, but he's not questioning. Faith, love, holiness, and self-control, all fruits of the Spirit, we will persevere in those things if we are saved in Christ. So, in essence, what he's doing here is he's making sure that he comes back full circle to remind us of the dignity that we all share in the salvation of our souls. So we should all constantly be grateful for the incarnation. Well, beloved, I can't say it any plainer that God's plan for worship flourishes when we follow it. It should not surprise us, though. It really shouldn't. It should not surprise us that Satan has sought to take words like submission, obedience, even modesty, and twist them to be something oppressive. Submission is freeing when we submit to God-honoring authority. Obedience is rich when we learn that it's an expression of love. Modesty is beautiful when we grasp that these bodies that we have, beloved, they're sacred. Your body this morning, if you can hear me, I hear me. Your body is sacred because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and it was formed in the image of God. It is not a thing to be flippant about. It is not a thing to mutilate. Because we are made in God's image. So we dare not use our bodies like the world does. And we dare not objectify the bodies of others the way the world does. 
Because when we look at a human being, whether they're a Christian or not, we are looking at a soul and a body made in the image of God. And let us be reminded that that is sacred. So when we look at this, God's plan for worship is how we grow best, deep in our roots. God isn't trying to rob anyone, quite the opposite. God's design is for our growth and flourishment. The question we have to ask is, when we come to texts like this, do I really believe that's what God wants to do? I pray that we really do believe it, because that is, in fact, what God wants to do. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. We, we confess that the culture we live in makes this conversation difficult. And Father, I pray that I speak truly on this matter. I pray that it be received truly on this matter. And I pray that as we live our lives, God, that we not live in constant judgment and derision of others, but we also seek to walk the way of truth and not falsehood. So, Father, we yield this to you, and I pray that the seed this morning, that the seeds that have been planted, that they would flourish and grow, and that we would be a people whose sole desire is to love you well before a watching world, and to love your truth. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.